Greetings to the brightest audience in the country. I'm Nicole McBurney. We have about a week left to our telethon. We have a goal of $25,000 so we can bring on a full-fledged media team to help us produce quality content for you, our fantastic audience. Uh, we're currently at 8500 thereabout, and we have only a week left, so it's a real race against time. If you can go to kgov.com, hit that telethon banner, we could really use the help to get us to our $25,000 goal before the month is over. So be sure to go to kgov.com after the show, and here's today's Theology Thursday. We are going to look at a couple difficult Bible passages, problem texts, or just passages that might be confusing to some. And we're going to see how an understanding of the Word of God helps us to understand its details. Grasping the overview of the Bible is the key to its details. So we're going to look at a confusing passage, maybe confusing, in Leviticus 19, and then one in Romans 14, and then we'll try to figure it all out. So I now need to be a better Bible teacher than I'm able to, and if you could all be better students than you're able to, with the Holy Spirit making those two ends meet, hopefully we'll understand God's Word better when we leave than we do right now. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19, you shall keep my statutes. So certainly a believer reading this who doesn't know the Bible rightly divided, the overview, would think, well, whatever I'm about to read, I better make sure to do. Because God said, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. And boy, I'm glad I don't have any livestock because I wouldn't know how to stop them. <laughs> you shall not sow your field with mixed seed. Uh-oh, do any of you have a garden in your backyard? Have any of you had tomato plants growing up high with squash underneath? Are you sinning? Should you destroy all the produce from your garden? What if you go to a grocery store and buy food that was raised with a disregard for these ordinances? Remember God said, do not eat meat sacrificed to idols? And so, those who did not sacrifice meat to idols, they were worried about the meat they bought. Because what if I go to the marketplace, what if I go to the Agora, the town square, the town center, and I buy meat, and it was sacrificed to idols? Then I'm disobeying God. So, Jews who were observant for the Torah and the Mosaic Law, if they didn't know where the meat came from, they would not eat it. So they would become vegetarians. Like Daniel, who in fact, Daniel and his three co-workers, who said, we're not going to eat any meat. We're only going to eat vegetables. And they honored God and God blessed them. They became strong, right? In fact, it's good to be a vegetarian. I'm a vegetarian. I only eat vegetables and grains and animals that eat vegetables and grains. And that eat animals that eat vegetables and grains. That's it. And so, God wants us to keep His statutes. Don't let your livestock breed with another kind. Like if you take a horse and a donkey and you breed them and you have a mule, then is it a sin to buy a mule? To have a mule? To use a mule? To be a mule? Don't sow your 
field with mixed seed, like barley and wheat together, God's saying don't do it. Nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. So you have to wear a certain kind of fabric that's pure. Now a couple weeks ago, we were in this chapter, Leviticus 19, and we were going through in Sunday school, and we're still doing that. If you, we have another one or two weeks left, you're welcome to join us. But we're looking at these passages and applying the overall understanding of the Bible and the biblical principles so we see what applies to us today and what does not. What is eternal spiritual principle in this chapter and what is not? What is a temporary command to Israel? What is symbolic? What is moral? What should the governments enforce? What should they ignore? And so these are important questions because God tells us to rightly divide the word of truth so we're not ashamed. So that's one problem text. And then let's go to the New Testament, Romans 14. A favorite chapter of mine. And by the way, a chapter that you cannot possibly understand if you don't rightly divide the word of truth and if you don't know the difference between the ministry of Peter and Paul. If you don't know the difference between the ministry of Peter and Paul, you can't understand Romans 14. And you might as well just discard it. Because it will be a complete mystery. And so by the end of this message, hopefully we'll get a better grasp of Peter and Paul. Okay, Romans 14, another troubled text for, for some. Therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. So don't judge. Now we know that that's repeated by many Christians, don't judge. Except that the whole Bible teaches us to judge. Jesus said judge with righteous judgment. Jesus said take the, take the plank out of your own eye so you could see clearly enough to judge your brother. There's a book of judges in the Bible. He who is spiritual judges all things for we have the mind of Christ, Paul told us in Corinthians. We will judge the angels in the world. So get judging, he says. So why would Paul write, therefore let us not judge one another? And to make it worse, look at verse 22. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. What is he saying? Keep it to yourself? Don't share your faith with others? Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. What's going on? Well, let's start to unravel these passages and we'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 for starters. And then we're going to do a bit of a whirlwind Bible study. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 9. Paul quotes a passage from the Mosaic Law that talks about an ox treading out the grain. And it says this, For it is written in the Law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? And then Paul goes on to answer, no, it's not oxen God is concerned about. God gave this law as a symbol for some other more significant spiritual truths. And so if someone is ministering in the gospel, a worker is due his hire, his wage, 
So if someone is ministering in the gospel, then it's appropriate for him to be supportive. So that's the message. Is the message that the ox should be able to eat when he's treading out the grain? Did God write it for the sake of the oxen? No. Verse 10, does God say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. It is not the oxen that God is concerned about. You could cut up the oxen and eat it if you want. So there is a deeper spiritual significance to that passage. Now, I want to back up and look in this section of 1 Corinthians at passages having to do with eating and drinking. And then we'll go way back to see how you got your food in Leviticus 19 with don't mix different types of livestock, don't mix different types of grain in your field. So let's go back just to 1 Corinthians 8 and we'll start with verse 4. Therefore concerning the eating of things offered to idols. Now Paul is going to do something that you have not seen to this point in the Bible. He's going to give a reason why you don't have to obey the law when God said, do not eat meat sacrificed to idols. He's going to give a reason why that law is not an absolute moral principle. It's not an eternal spiritual truth. And we don't have to obey it. We could eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now isn't that weird? Why would Paul do anything to suggest that we don't have to keep the statutes of God? Because Paul was given the gospel of grace and he was told that the gospel of grace is different from Israel's covenant of circumcision and the Mosaic law. The two are different and there are two different peoples of God. Israel and the body of Christ. Israel keeps circumcision. The body of Christ does not. And so let's look. Concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. So he's undermining the eternal, absolute concept that someone might think is inside that law. Is it fundamentally immoral to eat a piece of meat if someone sacrificed that animal to an idol? It is in an absolute eternal wrong to eat that meat. No, it's symbolic. It's symbolic. So God gave ordinances to Israel, some that were absolute eternal truths, like don't worship other gods. Don't murder don't commit adultery. But then there were symbolic ordinances. Like only eat certain kinds of food and don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. So Paul said, hey, when you get right down to it, idols are make-believe anyway. Now some might represent demons, that's true. But as a general rule, if you worship the moon god, there is no moon god. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, false gods. Yet for us there is one God. Verse 7, However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Paul has spent years, by the time he wrote Corinthians, teaching his converts 
that we are not under the Mosaic law. We don't live by circumcision. And so the body of Christ today does not circumcise male children on the eighth day of their life. We do not because we're not supposed to. And we don't execute those who pick up sticks on the Sabbath. And we don't worry if our clothing has mixed fabrics, fibers in it, because we're not supposed to. These were all symbolic. And we don't worry when we buy meat at King Supers if some butcher was praying a prayer or chanting to Hare Krishna when he chopped up that chunk of meat. We don't worry about those things. So Paul says that some of my converts who I have taught that you're not under the law, you're under grace, you don't have to keep the dietary law. When they ate meat that was sacrificed to idols, they believed it was wrong for them to do. They believed it was wrong, and because they believed it was wrong, for them it was wrong. Because if you don't do something from faith, anything not of faith is sin, so then you're sinning. But I want you to know, I don't want you to be weak, I want you to be strong. So the idol is nothing. Verse 8, But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. So when I go to dinner with a Christian family, if I know their theology, and I know that they're keeping the dietary law, and they think it's a sin to have lobster. Now, it is if you don't have melted butter with it. But if they think it's a sin to eat shell food, then I would not order a shrimp at a restaurant with them because I don't want to offend them. I want to teach them, but not in that way. So if we're at a pizza place, do they have low-carb pizza? <laughs> I guess not. Uh, in my past, I would not order pepperoni on the pizza if they were keeping the dietary law, because I don't want to offend them. But I would look for an opportunity to teach them the gospel of grace, and that we're no longer under the law or circumcision. So beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, do you see that? How is it that you would be eating in an idol's temple? How does that happen? Well, you go to Corinth. Many of us here have gone to Corinth, right? D went, a bunch of you. And you go to Corinth and you go to the temple to Athena, and it's just the foundation now, and in front of it is a massive pit. It's such a huge pit that you could drive a dump truck into it. And it's carved into solid rock. And it's there 2,000 years later because it was such a major feature of the temple because all the pagans would bring their animals to the pagan priest, to Athena, to sacrifice those animals. And then what would they do with all that meat? What would they do with it? Throw it out? They would barbecue it right at the temple. And it was a major center of commerce. Downtown Corinth. People would come and they'd get hungry. They'd go to a restaurant. Well, if you want baby back ribs... You go to the temple, you sit down, and you order, and they bring it to you. Medium rare, well done. However, 
And so here you are, a Christian, going to a pagan temple because you're hungry. Is that a possibility in Paul's mind? It absolutely is. Is it immoral to go to a pagan temple to eat? Have you ever gone to Starbucks? Is it inherently a sin? It is not. How many restaurants are immoral with their proceeds? How many? You can't even count them. It is not immoral. If we have knowledge, if we're not weak, if we're weak, we think it's a sin. We can't go. But if we have knowledge, we know we can go because we're not under the Mosaic law and the idol is just make-believe anyway. But if I have a weak brother, and that could be some of you here, it could be. I have to go through and take a census of each person. If I have a weak brother who will stumble, then I have to reevaluate. Do I want to go to this place because the owner gives money to some evil organization? And then I might not go if I think it will cause you to stumble. But notice in the passages related to this, the ones who stumble are not those who are strong in the faith. They're the ones who are weak. So the churches that are legalistic and they say you can't drink wine. Say, why not? Because you might make someone stumble. You say, well, who would stumble? Well, the pastor and the elders. <laughs> they would stumble. So that law of love is designed to protect those who are weak. But this is all historically significant because there was a change in dispensation from Israel and their Mosaic covenant to the body of Christ and our gospel of grace. So the rules have changed. And during that transition, even though it happened in a moment when the Apostle Paul was saved, and then no longer do we have to circumcise, no longer, so that the uncircumcised would receive the Holy Spirit, it shocked the apostles. How could it be that a Gentile could be saved apart from circumcision? It was startling. So that during that transition, even though the body of Christ began when the Apostle Paul was saved and God gave the gospel of grace through him to the Gentiles and the Jews who thereafter would believe, but there was a transition period where members of both covenants were alive and living side by side. So the 12 apostles lived at the same time Paul lived. And as they ministered, they were teaching circumcision in the, in the covenant of the Mosaic Law. That's what they were teaching. And Paul was teaching the Gospel of Grace and don't circumcise and don't keep the law. So there were tensions. And Paul is explaining how to deal with the tensions. When James died, think of the 12 apostles and Paul. Think of those as two different entities. The 12 apostles and Paul. When James was killed by Herod in Acts chapter 12, was he then replaced? Did the apostles meet to find someone to replace James because they needed 12 apostles for the 12 tribes of Israel, as Jesus said? He was not replaced. Why not? Because he's still an apostle. Is James still an apostle in heaven? Of course he is. We find out in the book of Revelation that the 12 walls around the New Jerusalem have engraved on them the names of the 12 apostles. So James' name is still on one of those walls. So they didn't have to replace James. Did they replace Judas? They sure did. Why? Because Judas 
rejected Jesus Christ, and he was no longer an apostle. And because Israel had 12 tribes, God wanted 12 apostles for the 12 tribes of Israel. So they replaced Judas with Matthias in a manner that honored and humbled the apostles before God. And so the Holy Spirit then in the book of Acts, even though there were 11 apostles, once they selected Matthias, the Holy Spirit resumed to refer to the 12 apostles because now their number was made whole. So then why does Paul come along? What's that point? Paul comes along because God has turned from Israel and their kingdom and circumcision to the body of Christ and grace. And today, a Jew can be a part of the body of Christ. Any Jew who trusts in Christ is a part of the body of Christ. Israel, their covenant relationship and God's plan for Israel has been put on hold. That kingdom is held in abeyance until God is complete with his work with the Gentiles, the body, and then he will turn to Israel and resume his plan for Israel. So as we continue through here, I'd like to, I only have a couple minutes, but I, I want to make a reference to Romans 14. Romans 14, about the weaker brethren and those who are stronger, the weaker ones think you can't eat meat because it might have been sacrificed to idols. Who is Paul referring to? He's referring to Peter's converts. Paul knew, because we are under the gospel of grace, that we don't have to abide by those regulations and those symbols. We don't. And so Paul says, look, let each one be fully convinced. Whether you keep the Sabbath or you do not, each one must obey his own master. So the follower of Christ, who was part of Israel's kingdom, like Peter, James, and John, they obeyed their Lord through his covenant of circumcision. And Paul and his converts obeyed their Lord through the covenant of grace. So each one must be fully convinced. So in the next chapter, Paul says, Jesus Christ became a servant to the circumcision. And I, Paul, by the grace that was given to me, became a servant to the Gentiles. So that we would follow Christ as Paul followed him. So we would not circumcise. We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't tell our converts to give away their home and their land and give all their money to the church. We wouldn't do that. Because while the twelve did that, with Jesus' support, Paul never did that. Because they were living under different rules from God. Israel was living under the household of Israel, the house of Israel, and we are living under the household of faith. So, to get back to Romans 9, verse 9, it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. So if you think that law means that it's immoral to muzzle an ox while he's helping process the harvest, you miss the point. And you could build a whole world view 
based on a legalistic interpretation of hundreds of Bible verses that cause you to miss the point. And isn't it sad when we miss the point and the pointer is God? Isn't it sad when we miss the point and He's the pointer? So let's conclude back where we started in Leviticus 19. In verse 19. And when Paul wrote, do not judge and keep your faith to yourself, he was saying that if there are other converts to Christ who are under Peter's covenant of circumcision, do not judge them. They are eating according to the dietary law. They are obeying the Sabbath according to their obedience to God under the covenant of circumcision. Do not judge them. Keep your faith to yourself. He's not saying, don't share it. Don't live out your faith in public. Is he saying that? No, he's saying within the body of Christ, we need to recognize what statutes apply to us. And we need not to force our rules on those of Peter's converts who were keeping the dietary law. They are obeying their Lord as we are obeying our Lord, but it's the same Lord through two different covenants, through two different dispensations. And so in Leviticus 19, when we read this, we could realize that there's a bigger picture. There's a bigger context. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. And in fact, look at verse 20. You shall not eat anything with the blood. So are the Jehovah's Witnesses right? And it's a sin to have a blood transfusion? No, they're completely confused. Because that was a symbolic ordinance pointing to Jesus Christ because he would come and say, if you want eternal life, drink my blood. So that the ordinance that was in force for 1,500 years for the Jews not to eat blood, not to drink blood, not to even come near meat that hasn't been drained of all its blood, that in the mind of the Jews, that raised the blood to this heavy significance. So that, what was God's reason for doing that? Was it for our health? No. If it was for our health, didn't he care about Noah? Why wouldn't he tell Noah this? Why would God wait for over a thousand years before he warned people, don't drink blood? It wasn't for our health. It was for our spiritual edification that the nation of Israel would be focused on their food because Christ would come and say, I am the bread from heaven. And he would be the sacrifice. They were focused on the sacrifice. And he would say, eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's why God had them sacrifice the Passover lamb and then eat it. So they would learn that we had to partake of the sacrifice. So Jesus Christ, he was the fulfillment of these principles. Don't drink the blood. God stated so that when Jesus came and said, if you want eternal life, drink my blood. So men would be so shocked at the teachings of this perfect man that they would have to seriously consider what he was saying and what he was about to do, shed his blood for us. And you shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. 
You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. Christ is our covering, as we said two weeks ago. He is a pure covering of righteousness. And Israel, they were to honor God and not intermarry with the pagans around them. And there were two reasons, and I close with these two reasons. One was practical. If the Jews intermarried with the Gentiles, if they took their daughters for their wives, then the nation of Israel would fully succumb to idolatry in worshiping false gods. And in fact, Solomon did exactly that, and he built altars to false gods in Jerusalem, in the high places. And he utterly rebelled against God and brought devastation on his country because of it. God did not want the Jews to marry Gentiles because that would import the wickedness of the Gentiles into God's covenant people. And secondly, Israel's seed would lead to the Messiah, would lead to God incarnate. And God knew that there was a demonic attack on the seed of Israel, as with the Nephilim before the flood and after. So God wanted Israel to stay pure in their seed, in their descendants, and also the seed of Abraham would be Jesus Christ. The seed, singular, not plural. The hope of the world, the nations would be blessed in the seed of Abraham because it would eventually result in the birth of the Messiah, our Creator, God, Savior, Jesus Christ. So that is why God said, don't mingle your livestock and let them breed. Don't sow your field with mixed seed. So if you have a garden and it's very symbiotic, biological symbiosis, so you want to take advantage of the latest technology in growing your garden and you're sinning because you're mixing seed in, your, in the same field, if you're worried about that because God said you shall keep my statutes, don't mix tomatoes with squash, and now you're in a moral crisis because your wife has disobeyed God in the garden? Do you see how if we focus in on narrow details, we could be as confused as unbelievers on a thousand issues? But If we ask God to help us understand the overview of his word, even though it takes work, we could be strong in our faith and good examples to others. May God bless you all. May he make his face to shine upon you.